Welcome to Out on a Limb, where traditional finance and the new digital economy converge with a sense of history. My name is Tim Enneking, and this is episode 42, believe it or not. It is 27th of June, 2023, about 345 on the west coast of the United States. Four relatively small topics today after the, the hue and cry of interest rates and all the other things that have been going on. Um, really not all that much economic news, although our standards are pretty high now because there is so much happening. Uh, the first topic is just general economic news, which has been very positive lately and very interesting. Uh, jobless claims last week were flat, uh, so that means that the number of unemployed wasn't increasing. And generally, if you're looking at a, a recessionary environment, an environment with uh, rapidly rising interest rates, you would not see flat jobless claims. You'd see higher ones. And then over the last couple of days, we've seen uh, manufacturing numbers increase, new home sales numbers surprisingly increase because interest rates are so high, and consumer confidence uh, all up very much uh, this week. So it really except for the home sales and a little bit of manufacturing, those aren't really immediate indicators of, of economic health or, or the lack thereof, but they, are, they add to a drumbeat of generally positive news despite the rising interest rates. So then you have Powell who came out in his, in his uh, testimony to Congress saying, you know, very, very hawkish, saying we're going to have more. This is only a pause uh, and trying to save face in case he has to continue to raise to increase interest rates. Uh, the absolute correct thing to him, for him to say that he really had no other choice. Anything else he, he would have said would have resulted in markets, uh, stock markets and other markets going up. And it would be self-defeating because that people feel richer, they go buy more stuff, drives more purchasing, drives inflation. So he said exactly what he was supposed to say. And the more emphatic he is about, I'm going to raise interest rates after a pause, the, uh, the lower the odds of him having to raise interest rates. So it's this great psychological game going on. And uh, against all that, I'm not changing my prediction. I haven't changed it since probably late last year. And sticking, sticking to my guns, looking at the longer term, and so far that's proven to me to, to be a very good way of looking at it, just... The only error so far this year was in February. I predicted 50 basis points and the Fed did 25 and then stayed at 25 and then went down to zero. So uh, I'm sticking to it. But the, the other pundits, I suppose, if I give myself that label, they are now increasing their odds. Many of them were wrong in June. So now they're saying, OK, we're going to have an increase in July. Perhaps we will. Perhaps we won't. But I just laugh when I see different predictions contradictory positions being put out by the same Wall Street bank uh, every other week. It's, uh, the prediction isn't worth much if it changes that rapidly. So I have been very emphatic that we're not going to see reductions this year. And most of Wall Street is caught up to that now. They're saying, OK, we're not going to have any more. We're not going to have any interest rate reductions. I'm sticking with my uh, prior prediction. I'm very comfortable with it. The second topic is just an interesting factoid, I think, is the best word for it. And that is the average age in the United States was released last week, late last week. The average age is now 39. 
And if you think about that, that's actually really quite old. You, people have 20, 25 years of of working years left, especially if you're looking at things like the Social Security system. But the trend is phenomenal. In the year 2000, the average age was 35. In 1980, to some of us that feels like a long time ago, to others of us it's not that long ago, just over 40 years, the average age was 30. So what that means is over the last 40-odd years, every three months, the average age of uh, an individual, uh, the average age in the, in the U.S., uh, sorry, every three years, has gone up by one year. Pretty astounding increase. And it leads to similar issues uh, in many countries in the world. The, the two worst in terms of aging fast and not having a, a population behind it to support uh, the population as it ages and retires the two worst examples are South Korea and Japan. Uh, South Korea, basically, I heard someone call it the other day a tree. So if you look at a at a healthy demographic chart, you'll have lots of people, you know, lots of children, lots of babies, and then it's a a, a standard pyramid. And as you get closer and closer, you get over, you know, you start getting 40s, 50s, 60s, 80s, 90s. You get to the hundreds, hundred tens, and it's a very, very small point on the on the top of the pyramid. Uh, South Korea has a tree. It goes straight up. In other words, you have no more uh, people entering the workforce than are exiting the workforce. And the frightening aspect of it is when Social Security and other programs are put together, were established, there was about a three-to-one ratio of workers to retirees. And that's healthy, and that's fine. Some places it was higher, some places it was lower. Uh, in the United States, it's uh, about two-to-one, just under two-to-one. In Korea, it's one-to-one. Uh, in Japan, it's 1 to 1.5. In other words, there are more people retired in Japan, very long lifespan in the country. They retire, retired relatively early. These are people who are retiring in the 90s and 2000s, who, many of whom are still around. So you have an inverted pyramid in Japan. And obviously, that cannot continue. You literally run out of population. Japan has something like 300,000 abandoned houses in the country, and something like 15,000 abandoned villages. You see in, in the media, particularly in CNN, they like the stories about the village in, in Italy that will pay somebody, a, to, pay somebody a, to take a house. They'll give them title to it as long as they, they fix it up or pay them a dollar for it, or you have to pay a symbolic dollar for it. The situation in Japan is far, far more dire. And the issue there is that Japanese population is quite racist, unfortunately, and the immigration policies are very, very strict. The language is difficult to learn. The culture is quite complex. These are all good reasons to preserve the language and the culture, except the racist part, of course. But the it's very difficult to do because the learning curve to become, quote unquote, Japanese is very difficult. And if you're from Africa or the Philippines or from wherever, you're probably not going to fit in in terms of your appearance, and then the, the racism becomes an issue again. That is going to have to change in Japan, going to have to change in South Korea, basically because of the Korean War. South Korea is probably, probably not as racist as Japan, but also not a particularly welcoming country. The language is a lot easier. It's, it's got an alphabet. Japan has, 
has uh, three alphabets, depending on which one you need, you, you want to use. And the, one of them is based on Chinese characters, and that's extremely difficult to learn. But in any event, in the United States, the number, the, the percentage of the population that's immigrants is about 16%. That 16% figure has been stable for about 150 years, was higher before then. But we need immigrants in the United States to simply not have um, the demographic time bomb that you have in countries like South Korea and, and Japan. And Europe is also very, very much experiencing this. Japan, Germany, the UK, they're all experiencing the exact same problem. And the only way to uh, avoid the problem in the way that the United States in particular has histor historically done so is through immigration. And, and of course, you want to control it. You don't want to have rampant uh, uncontrolled immigration, but you need immigrants to uh, both to make the to take lower level jobs as people work their way up. But now you have this demographic time bomb that is about to go off. And folks that talk about Social Security being the third rail of U.S. politics and you can't touch it, you can't change it um, there. It cannot remain untouched. There are ways to do it that aren't clumsy and aren't draconian, but Absolutely, that third rail has to be touched. And you may have heard about the strikes in, in Japan, that, uh, in Japan, sorry, in France that were very, very intense when Macron, um, the, the French president, raised uh, the retirement age from 62 to 64. France has had the youngest retirement age in the entire OECD, and the right to strike is guaranteed under the French Constitution. So the, many of the unions, the, right, the rightest and leftist unions, they all protested this. They lost, and very honestly, they should have, because with people living so long and with fewer number of people paying in compared to the people who are paying out, you, you can't debt finance a country forever. So it's a, it's a topic that we're going to hear a lot more of, not just in the U.S., but including in the U.S. And there have been some interesting articles about Canadian immigration. They have been inviting uh, educated immigrants in like crazy. And so that gets you to the point where we may find uh, where countries are, are competing for ed well-educated immigrants. You want young folks who are already educated, who, are, who can contribute to the extent that education is any sort of indicator, and it's probably not a bad one. You may find countries competing for uh, immigrants that have a better chance of contributing as opposed to just randomly. Uh, and this issue is only going to get more and more serious as the overall population ages. Now you see it in China now, which actually has surprisingly, right, because of the China was growing so quickly. Now India is the most populous country in the world, and China has, uh, has two problems. One, um, very few young people compared to the number of old people, and two, a lot more young men than young women because of just the horrible treatment of young girls. Uh, when you found out the gender, when you could only have one child, Chinese couples would have an abortion or something. Uh, and so you have a horribly lopsided and small young population in, in China. So you're going to see that. You start, you're starting to see indications of that problem now, but it actually may get, uh, may get much more serious. Third point is... Uh, the judiciary riding to crypto's rescue. 
I mentioned this, I think, two or three episodes ago, where the only break on regulation by enforcement, that is the SEC, but also the CFTC to a lesser degree, deciding to change the enforcement of laws when the laws themselves hadn't changed. And then so you're going after folks like uh, Coinbase, which is the most ironic one, because only two years ago, that same SEC said, oh, yes, you can take your company public. And now then the SEC swings around and says, oh, what you're doing is is completely illegal. You can't run an exchange because you're not registered as an exchange. It's a bit difficult to square those two decisions when virtually nothing changed in Coinbase's uh, business model or nothing material changed in their business model. So as I mentioned, the judiciary, is, it's, got to, it's got to decide or it's going to have to decide. Well, I didn't expect it to happen so quickly because less than two weeks after the, the cases that the SEC filed against Coinbase and Binance US, the judiciary rules in favor of Coinbase. Now, it didn't rule in favor of Coinbase with respect to anything directly related to crypto. It was basically, can Coinbase force people would open a Coinbase account into arbitration as opposed to suing in court. And generally, arbitration is much more favorable to companies. So uh, brokers and other companies, they much prefer to go to arbitration, and they've got arbitration clauses in all of their contracts. Courts have been known to break those arbitration clauses, given particularly egregious behavior by whatever the financial institution was. In this case, the courts went, the court, the question went all the way to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court said, no, Coinbase, you can get, you can get your arbitration. So, uh, not, not all that big a deal. It's important actually probably for more non-crypto institutions than crypto institutions, but very important to Coinbase. It sent, uh, uh, BTC, Bitcoin, um, from about 25.5 to now where it's above 30,000 and it looks like it was struggling around 30,000, as one would expect, around those round numbers. But now it looks like 30,000 may indeed be support as opposed to resistance, which would be quite important because obviously you look to the next, the next levels. Uh, but uh, the judicial system is also probably going to uh, ride to crypto's rescue again with the Ripple decision. Ripple is the company behind the token called XRP. They were sued by the SEC in 2020. So the, the case has been going on for uh, almost three years, and there is a decision uh, expected in the next month or so. Uh, in the meantime, though, there was a gentleman, a uh, guy by the name of Iman, who was head of enforcement of the SEC in 2018, and he gave a speech basically saying Ethereum is not a uh, security, and now the SEC is trying to disavow that speech but in addition, the uh, coin, uh, Ripple sued for the notes, the internal notes that the SEC had when it when Iman circulated this, the draft of his speech, and all of the, almost all of the comments contradict the SEC's current position. So it's really going to have the SEC is really going to have a difficult time being consistent, and honestly, that's not surprising given how. Uh, how erratic its enforcement has been. So the argument from crypto is to some degree, hey, you let us go for years and now you're enforcing these laws. You don't have any right to do that. Um, there's, there's actually legal precedent for things like that where if you have refrained from doing something for so long. But the bigger point that Ripple has is you didn't tell us what the clear signals were. You didn't, you didn't give us any, 
any clear road marks. There are some responses to that that the SEC has. They would argue that DAO, the action with DAO was the first shot across the bow. But there are enough distinguishing factors between many tokens, particularly this transition from a security to a utility token, which has no equivalent in the fiat space. And the concept doesn't really exist, but the, the concept of once a security, always a security, no matter what happens, is also not something that really exists and that can be rammed down uh, crypto's throat. So it'll be fascinating to see what happens. Um, in addition, the right after the Coinbase and, and Binance US cases, you had BlackRock file for a, uh, a spot BTC ETF. And then Fidelity followed behind that and at least three other companies followed behind those. The idea being these guys had set up a trustee for the ETF, but it's still exchange traded fund on a daily basis. So BlackRock took BlackRock took its bit of a, a bit of a different uh, uh, attack, and it may well succeed as we discussed last week, especially with their track record of five seventy five to one. So uh, if they don't, if, if the SEC does not approve, you could conceivably see somebody like, like BlackRock going to court and saying, "Hey, the SEC is being inconsistent here. They should have approved this." So fascinating developments, slow developments because the judicial system. Uh, does not move quickly in the United States or elsewhere. But uh, eventually, I think we may see the pendulum come a little bit, swing a little bit back in favor of crypto. Uh, the fourth and last point is, dear Mr. Prigozhin, fascinating fellow, uh, two-time felon, served hard time in Russia, uh, befriended Putin somehow, uh, became his caterer, so he had very lucrative, I'm told, contracts, to provide food to the Kremlin in other places, expanded that to a troll farm in 2015 and 16 to try to tilt the U.S. election to uh, Donald Trump, and then expanded into becoming a mercenary. If nothing else, the guy has an interesting business sense. And the, the firm he created, uh, Wagner, from the musician uh, Wagner, is uh, very active in in uh, Russia and probably uh, controls DAR, the, the, the um, sorry, the Democratic Republic Congo, DRC, and uh, controls a lot of its gold mining there. But it's fascinating what happened because, of course, his, his mercenaries who were mainly uh, former prisoners, and he was extremely familiar with uh, the overall situation and mindset of felons, so about 30 to 40,000 of the Wagner troops were convicted felons, six months in Wagner. If they're still alive, they get to go home. And those were the troops that were thrown into Bakhmut, this strategically completely unimportant city, but it, it just because of, of where the lines ended up firming up and, and where the two sides, Ukraine and Russia, ended up fighting, became psychologically very important after seven months he was able to finally take the city, which by then was completely destroyed and even less meaningful than it was before. Um, and he doesn't like the way he's treated by the the army. The Russian army is very, uh, very jealous, very self-conscious, and it hated Wagner and hated the whole group. It hated the fact that, that Prigozhin was getting all the attention and his troops, the Wagner private military company, was getting all the attention. And so they started 
cutting him off or making life difficult, cutting, cutting him off from ammunition and support and various other things. So Wagner wanted to make, or rather Prigozhin wanted to make a dramatic gesture, and wow, did he ever. He sent his tanks on the back of a flatbed trucks, sent them into Rostov-na-Donu, which is a city just east of uh, Ukraine, and from there quickly sent them up the road, up M4 to Moscow, and about 120 miles away, about 200 kilometers away, decided to turn around. Now, I think this was his march for justice. I think if more people had, if anybody really had flocked to Prigozhin's banner, he would have kept going. And I don't think actually there were a lot of armed forces around Moscow that would have been able to do anything. He went untouched, virtually untouched, almost all the way to Moscow. And most of the troops aren't there. They're in the Ukraine losing that war. So the, uh, he would have kept going, but there wasn't a lot of support, if any. And uh, so he agreed to uh, go and exile to Belarus, which is also just fascinating because Lukashenko was a, very much a puppet of, of Putin. Belarus barely has any independence worth the name. Uh, it'll be fascinating to watch. Uh, first question, how long will Prigozhin live? You could actually see, uh, see Putin pulling a Navalny and putting... Uh, poison radioactive substances in his underwear. And that is actually what uh, Putin's henchmen did to, to Alexei Navalny, which is why he almost died and was flown on an emergency flight to Germany for six months to recover. Uh, and so it'll, I, I'll be very surprised if Prigozhin, if Prigozhin lives. Uh, he'll probably end up going to, to Africa to join his troops there, where they uh, run gold mines and, and other things on behalf of of various uh, friendly countries, let's say. So all, all together, a real, real fiasco. And the, the, the conclusion is that Putin, who wanted to divide NATO, wanted to divide uh, uh, the West in general, wanted to take the Ukraine, wanted to reunite the Slavs, wanted to become a, the strong macho dictator on top of everything in that part of the world, he literally has lost everything that uh, he would, every battle he was trying to pick, he has lost. He hasn't yet lost in the Ukraine completely, although he certainly, he certainly has uh, lost most, uh, has not gained most of what he wanted to. I love the order. If you read the order that he gave to officers who were among the first troops to invade uh, Kiev, invade toward Kiev, invade Ukraine toward Kiev from the north, they were told to bring their dress uniforms with them for the victory parade down the main streets of, of Kiev. Well, we all know how that, uh, how that worked out, and I, I suspect their dress uniforms are, have either been captured or are back in Moscow. And so the, the, the NATO is stronger than ever. The West is less divided than ever. NATO has actually gotten bigger with Finland, and as soon as... Erdogan lets Sweden in, which hopefully will be a month or two. Sweden will also join. And so Putin has lost everything that he wanted to gain. And I'll end with a, a joke that the Russians are telling to each other, uh, literally as we speak. And that is, before the war started, the Russian army was the number two army in the world. Uh, that was the general assessment. That was the second strongest army behind the army of the United States, with China a close third. Right after the invasion, after several months, it turns out that the Russian army was the number two army in Ukraine. Because, of course, the number one army was the Ukrainian army. 
And now, after Boghossian, the Russian army is the number two army in Russia. And I've listened to a number of folks who have talked, a uh, number of people in Russia who have, who have talked about uh, Russia and what the attitude is, and even some English language commentators. And this joke has made the rounds, and they have referred to, they are referring now to the Russian army as the number two army, almost no matter where it goes. And on that cheery note, uh, Slava Ukraina, I wish, uh, I wish the Ukrainians the, the best of luck and as much success as possible in their counteroffensive. And let's wait a, a week or so, we'll have some more very, very interesting financial news. Thank you.